in our series, Church 101, Lewis and I are trying to sort of interweave the history of Signal Mountain Bible Church with the doctrine of the church. And uh, we are also approaching this month, as Lewis, Lewis mentioned, when we're going to be emphasizing missions. Chris Petty here next week uh, from Bolivia, Argiris Petru from Greece uh, a couple of weeks after that. Uh, two of our very beloved missionary families. Years ago, when we started a missions program um, here at Signal Mountain Bible Church, 34 years ago, when our church has begun, uh, we, 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 we were waiting for the time when we can start one. We, we didn't have money. We didn't have a plan, really. Ken and Gwen Baker were our first missionaries. And uh, um, we longed for the day when we could have a healthy missions program, which now, by God's grace, we have. We made a couple of, uh, of commitments at the time. One was that we wanted to dream big and have our missions program be a huge portion, the, the largest portion of our budget. We're not there yet, but we're on our way. The other thing we committed to was that when we did start a missions program, and this is carried through all the way up until now, when we did start a missions program, we wanted to support those missionary families substantially. Um, there are too many, I have seen too many missionaries who come home on furlough and when they're supposed to rest, revitalize, and prepare for return, have to go to this church and that church and that church and that church, uh, all of whom give $25 a month to them, and they're expected to visit when they're on. It just wears them out. Now, that's kind of a worst-case interpretation, but that is very common. And, and when they return, uh, they, they don't have an ability to rest. So we determined right from the very first that we were going to uh, support them substantially. And we have, uh, we're very thankful uh, to be able to do that. In fact, anytime we mention a mission's need to you, we just, it, you almost have to watch out for the crowd of people who want to give. I can't tell you how blessed that makes us feel as pastors. Uh, so we, we deeply appreciate your love for missions. But before we move into missions, we have to ask the question, what is the mission of missions? The, and, and the answer, of course, is the gospel. The gospel is the reason for the church. And without the gospel, Signal Mountain Bible Church would not exist, obviously. It's because the church is not a social club where like-minded people gather to think moral thoughts and enjoy warm, fuzzy relationships and feelings. The church is a group of people who have been saved by grace through faith, baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. And as we have said, the church is not a building. This is not the church. You are the church, and you bring the church into the building. And when you leave, this will not be a church. I know we don't speak that way, but we've talked about this a number of times, uh, and, and recently, because that's, I believe, the way that we are supposed to think. Um, the one thing that we have in common is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read you two bullet points from our statement of faith. Signal Mountain Bible Church statement of faith. Here's bullet points three and four. Mankind created in the image of God fell into sin in Adam and is now sinful both by nature and by choice, the outcome of which is eternal death. 
from the condition that condition we can be saved only by the grace of god through faith on the basis of the work of the son by the agency of the holy spirit and here's the next point the eternal son became incarnate by being born of the virgin mary he is both true god and true man he lived a sinless life and died on the cross as our substitute shedding his blood for the remission of our sins. He rose bodily from the dead and will return again bodily to complete his saving work and to consummate the plan of God. If you are a visitor today, and if you are not a Christian, and maybe you're here wondering what Christians believe or what makes us tick, if that's the case, I am so glad you're here. <laughs> I'm so thrilled at your presence. But I'm also excited for you because I don't think you could have possibly come on a better Sunday when you're going to hear about religious hypocrisy, about sin, about spiritual pride, about salvation, about religious self-deception, about what determines the difference between heaven and hell. What you're going to hear is the gospel from Jesus' lips. Now, since our focus today is on the gospel, uh, some of the people who visit our church may wonder, why don't you give a closing invitation? I mean, if we don't call people forward to make a decision at the close of the service, does that mean we're not evangelistic? Actually, uh, altar calls for immediate decisions were first seen in Pentecostal holiness churches around the 1820s, and then in Baptist churches starting around the 1850s, mostly as a result of the theology of a, a man named Charles Finney. And um, uh, the first time that uh, they, they were not a part of the uh, great revivals in history, uh, the term altar call actually shows up for the first time in print in 1908. The norm throughout church history is for people to hear the gospel and, yes, be pressed for a decision. Jesus did that himself. Who do you say that I am? To Peter. To Mary, do you believe this? But not necessarily pressed to an immediate decision, or worse, manipulated to hear that God will give you just one more chance while the choir sings. And uh, if that sounds a little critical, forgive me, I grew up in it. But historically, emotional manipulation has resulted in far more church members than has, has resulted in Christian converts. For six years, I was involved in a great ministry which, in which, uh, on, paper, on paper, I led thousands of people to Christ. I just have no idea how many people the Holy Spirit led to Christ. That is a different thing. So let's be clear. Having people respond to a gospel call, whether it's coming forward, whether it's checking a box for follow-up, or praying the sinner's prayer while being silent in your seat, whatever the form of response, whatever the form of response, that is not the end of a process that is the beginning of one i walked down the aisle of a good church when i was seven and was baptized and then i was saved 10 years later 
and was rebaptized. <laughs> this may surprise you. In the early church, there's actually no mention anywhere that unbelievers attended church services. You may never have thought about that. The only, there's one place in the New Testament where the possibility is brought up. And the possibility was brought up as a hypothetical in 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul asks, what if an unbeliever shows up in your service and sees everything out of control? They'll think you're crazy. Stop it. <laughs> so that's 1 Corinthians 14. Anyway, unbelievers were not excluded from worship, but why would they want to attend? That's where the church gathered to receive the apostles' teaching. And furthermore, very soon, it was dangerous to attend. So they just didn't. Today, however, we're in a different day and time. Our culture has changed. And for the last three centuries in the United States, it has been expected that moral people, um, saved or not, will attend church, if nothing else, to, than to show humility uh, by acknowledging there's something greater than themselves. But even that, I think, is now fading from our culture. For us, from the very beginning, Signal Mountain Bible Church was launched as a Bible teaching church. When the two businessmen approached me about planning this church years ago, uh, there was a, a full acknowledgement that there are wonderful Bible-believing churches on the mountain, but the per what they wanted was something that was more teaching-oriented. But even so, and, 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 and we do that here. We try to teach you what the Word of God says. The church gathered is a place where believers are equipped with the Word of God to do the work of the ministry, built up with the truth of Scripture. As the Holy Spirit works in your heart and all of our hearts together, to apply his truth, we receive the apostles' teaching, the, the scripture teaching, Old Testament and New Testament truth. From the very beginning, that's been uh, the way that this church has, was established and has continued. But even so, we make sure that the gospel is present as the foundation of our worship. It's in our music, it's in our prayers. It's in the creeds that we sometimes recite together. It's in the sermon, sometimes more implicitly, sometimes more explicitly. The gospel is there not just for the sake of unbelievers who may be here. Oh, yes, and if you're here, here's the gospel. It's not that. But for the sake of all of us who revel in the truth of being saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I've already used the word gospel quite a bit. So let's start with uh, some of the basics. The word gospel means what? Good news. Pastor Tim Keller, uh, author of The Reason for God, wrote, here's the gospel. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe, and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. I love that statement. It's a great statement. Uh, it, 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 however, it's more of a description of our condition than of the richness of the gospel which he would agree with because he expanded on that but there, here's the deal there's nothing that i'm going to say to you this morning that will even begin to capture the richness of the gospel there's so many 
different things to say about it and so many different scriptures to point to and so many different ways to approach this topic. Uh, So where do we start? Well, why do we have a missions program? Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Exactly what was included in the phrase, make disciples. I believe that the church began at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 where the people heard the gospel, believed it, received it, submitted to the apostles' teaching. So what was it that they believed and received? We're going to be looking with the remaining time at two passages. One passage defines the essence of the gospel. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This passage defines the essence of the gospel. The second passage describes the application of the gospel, specifically how Jesus applied the gospel. So let's start off with 1 Corinthians 15. And if anybody should ever ask you, what is the gospel? Where do I go to read the gospel? I want you, the first thing to come to your mind, 1 Corinthians 15. That's where you go. That's where Paul defined it. Here is the essence of the gospel. Verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. So is that clear? The good news. Which I preached to you, that's in the past, which also you received, again, in the past. This was, that was their response to his preaching. They received it. In which you also stand, that's their present, by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you. That's in the future. Unless you believed in vain. Now, don't be thrown by that phrase. He's not saying some people believed and others really believed. That's not what he's getting at. The the phrase believed in vain has to do with an argument that he's anticipating in the rest of the chapter that against the view that there's no such thing as physical resurrection. So that's for later on. That's not what we're going to be looking at this morning. So what was it that Paul preached? Here it is, verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. At first importance, some doctrines are secondary and peripheral. But he makes a distinction that there are some that are primary and central. This is bedrock. This is what he received. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. It was 25 years later when he was writing this. Uh, So most are still alive, he says, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Now I want you to notice the four actions Christ died, buried, raised, appeared. All four of those verbs have Jesus Christ as the subject. They go together in two pairs. He died and was buried. He raised and appeared. So let's take a look at it. He died for our sins. He was dead. But his death was for our sins, and it was according to the Scriptures. What does that mean? Well, if you, if you just listen to Isaiah 53, which is a prophetic picture of, the, of Messiah's future work. It was written 700 years before Jesus came, 700 B.C. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. 
All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. His grave was aside with wicked men, the two thieves. Yet he was with a rich man in his death, Joseph of Arimathea, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, since he will bear their iniquities. Or as Paul put it, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Jesus died my death. He took my place. This is called substitutionary atonement. Atonement means covering. Sins were covered over. But that was only until you had more sins to add to the pile, which is in the next hour. Then those sins had to be covered over. Sacrificial lambs, were sacrifices were made, sin was covered over, atonement was the term for that. But it had to be redone and redone and redone and redone because those lambs could not take away sin. They could only cover sin. Until John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God's ultimate sacrificial lamb. He died in your place for your sins, past, present, and future, so that through faith in him you are eternally forgiven. No sin you commit. Next week, next year, will ever cause him to say, Okay, enough. I'm done with you. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So he died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried. That's evidence that guarantees his death. Everyone, Jewish leaders, Roman soldiers, all his friends, all his enemies, everyone knew that it was a corpse that went into that tomb. He was raised. Jesus kept saying things that the disciples just didn't get. Like, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. From that time, he just kept showing, kept explaining to them. They didn't get it, but it was prophesied, and it came to pass. And he appeared, that's the fourth word, his resurrection appearances were to eyewitnesses, and they are evidences that guarantee the resurrection. We're talking about people who were not expecting to see Jesus alive again. There's no mass hallucination. You hallucinate what you expect to see. Besides, Jesus, uh, pe people saw Jesus in the morning, at high noon, in the early evening, at multiple locations, different times, not darkened rooms and seances here. These people were all resurrection skeptics. Mary assumed Jesus' body had been taken. The eleven didn't believe the women's testimony. The two on the Emmaus Road, after the disciples believed, didn't believe the disciples. And, and then uh, James refused to believe it. Thomas didn't believe it. And then they saw Jesus alive. And they believed and were saved. Hundreds of people saw 
They saw Jesus alive, they believed, and they were willing to die for that. But there's one last witness to the resurrection in this chapter, and he's the one who's writing these words, who endured beatings, floggings, loss of family, loss of friends, loss of status, loss of property, and then eventually loss of life. Last of all, as to one who is untimely born, because he, Jesus appeared to him after the ascension, he appeared to me also, Saul of Tarsus, on his way to Damascus to harvest Christians and torture them to death. Now this is the gospel that you believed. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. And you, Paul would later write in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith. Make sure you get the prepositions right. We are saved by grace. We are not saved by faith. God's grace saves us based on the self-sacrifice, the self-sacrifice of God incarnate on the cross. And when we believe what God has done, when believing is faith, that's faith in, not in feelings, that's faith in the fact that Jesus was who he claimed to be and that he was raised from the dead, died for our sins according to the scriptures. And if you'd been at the tomb on the third day, you would have seen that he was no longer there. He was alive. But saving faith is more than believing that something is true. I believe that two plus two equals four. I really do. In the Bible, saving faith includes knowledge, assent to the truth of what you know, but then also a personal commitment of oneself to the truth of that. That's why the Bible uses these terms, accepting Christ, receiving Christ, receiving a gift. We commonly use the illustration of a chair. You've heard us use it before. Uh, so Luke's sitting in that chair right now. Did you examine that chair when you came in and make sure it would hold you up? Did you examine it underneath? No, okay. But he has knowledge that there is such a thing as a chair. He has a scent. That is a chair. And then he commits. He sits down in it. So all three component parts comprise saving faith. In the New Testament, uh, Jesus approached all kinds of people in different ways, but the essence of the gospel, whether you look forward in the gospels to his death, burial, and resurrection, or looking backward from Acts and the Epistles onto his death, burial, and resurrection, the trajectory of that, the essence is always the same. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins coupled with faith that Jesus is who he said he is. Who do you say that I am? The unique son of God and receiving his sacrifice as his gift to you. In New Testament doctrinal terms, your own righteousness can do nothing but condemn you. But when you receive Christ, you receive his righteousness. But who receives this amazing grace? Who receives this gift? Only those who are good enough? Only those whom God is impressed with? The ones that God wants on his team? Well, by now you know that's not the answer. 
So we've looked at the essence of the gospel. Now let's describe its application and turn to the last passage. Our last passage is in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Well, this is really one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It shows how what it means and what it doesn't mean. It's a story that Jesus told about a man who had lost hope of ever being forgiven through his own efforts. He was an outcast and he would never be accepted by religious people. And he knew that if God shared the opinions of everybody around him, he was toast. All his life, he would have been told that in order to enter heaven, keep the law, keep the law, keep the law. When you die, God weighs your good works against your bad, and 51% you're in. But the problem was he knew he could never measure up to God's law. And as far as he was concerned, he had no forgiveness. Now, in this story, this is the story Jesus told. This is his parable. This man was, called a, was a tax collector with the Jerusalem IRS. And in New Testament times, the, the tax collectors work, worked in a three-tiered system. I'm not going to go into the details of that. We could. But in order for the system to work, there had to be profit at all three levels. So publican or tax collector came to mean the same as extortionist. It was the worst of villains. He was the archetypal villain. And if you were a Gentile publican, a Gentile tax collector, that was bad enough. But if you were a Jewish tax collector going up to the temple to pray, you were a traitor to your people as well as to your God. So that's the tax collector. Across the temple from the tax collector was a Pharisee, a man that every Jew would admire. He was everything that the tax collector was not. He was respected by the people, loved by the religious leaders, and, you know, he knew that God was very pleased to have him on his team. If you were a first century Jew and you had never heard this story before and you're listening to it for the first time from Jesus' lips, you would assume that the hero of the story was a Pharisee and the villain was a tax collector. That's the way people thought. I mean, who prays a lot? The Pharisees. Who gives alms? Well, they knew the answer. They'd seen it publicly. Who gives tithes to the Lord, even out of his garden? Well, the Pharisees, because they, they had seen that publicly. People saw what the Pharisees, such a godly man. Such a God. But the story goes deeper than first century stereotypes. It goes to the core of how we see ourselves and how God sees us. And this is how the gospel is applied. So let's look at it, verse 9. He told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So he sets us up. Their view of themselves, they're confident in their own righteousness, not needing God's righteousness. Their view of others, contempt. Jesus is describing the self-deception of a horizontal, man-centered view of righteousness, not a God-centered view. Now, verses... Uh, the next verses show us two different prayers and two very different attitudes towards sin. And, and, and to examine this, I want to look at the body language and at the language. So first of all, the body language. When you look at the Pharisee, the text says he stood. And the verb there is a little unusual. It can mean he stood apart, which probably means he went to the front of the court of Israel where he could be seen. 
Remember Jesus said that the hypocrites choose the best seats in the temple? Same kind of an idea. So there he is, standing, proud, erect on his forehead. He's got his bling, you know, the phylacteries with uh, verses of Scripture embedded and tied around. Uh, mis- totally misunderstanding that Old Testament passage of, of having the Scripture on your front frontal, on the forehead. Uh, he means, he, well, it doesn't matter. His, his eyes are open. He's looking up to heaven. And probably his hands are like this in the figure of an H, which was the original Hebrew word for prayer. That's what he looks like. And, and that's, his, that's his posture. So there he is. But across the way is the tax collector. Verse, seven, verse 13 tells us about his body language. Standing some distance away. Like the Pharisee, he too is standing apart from God's people. But for a different reason. The Pharisee is too good to associate with them. The tax collector sees himself as not good enough. So standing some distance away, unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. This, this is a po- the posture of a man who has a keen sense of his own guilt, beating his breast, a sign of mourning and grief over his sin. So that's their body language. You see the contrast. But also, look at the contrast of the prayers. The Pharisee prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And then he recites his, the sins that he does not have. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like him, tax collector. Everything he lists is an external sin. Jesus challenged people not only on external sins, but also on what was going on in their hearts. And, and he recites the virtues he possesses. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. This man is big on self-esteem. If he were alive today, he'd write books on self-esteem and teach self-esteem seminars. He is confident that God is rather glad to have him on his side. How many times in his prayer does he mention God? Once. How many times does he mention himself? Five times. And when he refers to the tax collector, it's out of moral smugness that he is so much better. The Apostle Paul, and by the way, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee, in fact, the Pharisee of Pharisees. Once his eyes were opened to the gospel, wrote, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is my sinful nature. Romans seven eighteen. Because the Pharisee was thinking, there are only two categories of people in this world. There are those like me who please God, and then there's everybody else. Jesus is about to make the point that there are only two categories of people in the world. Sinners who admit their sin and sinners who do not. Verse 13. The tax collector standing some distance away, unwilling to lift up his eyes, beating his breast. And here's his statement. Here's his prayer. One line prayer. God be merciful to me, the sinner. His only audience is God. He doesn't try to bargain with God. He doesn't try to make any promises because he knows himself. He grieves over his own sin and he sees himself as the sinner. That's, there's a, not a sinner. There's a definite article there. It's unusual. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. 
The Pharisee thinks nobody's better than me, and the tax collector thinks everybody is better than me. I am the sinner. The tax collector thinks I am as bad as everybody thinks I am, and worse. I won't even try to pretend that I'm not so bad as other tax collectors who may be worse than me because I don't think there is anyone worse than me. What he does do is ask God for his mercy and forgiveness. But this needs some explanation. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. There is a theology of atonement embedded in these words. His prayer is not exactly be merciful because the regular Greek word for mercy is not used here. That's the word that refers to compassion or pity. That's not used. Instead, he uses a term from the sacrificial system. It's used in the, um, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to the sacrificial system. It's used only one other time in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 2 to refer to atonement. Here's the, here's the picture. The prayer is, God be propitious. That is, merciful based upon God's revealed sacrificial substitution. He'd made a sacrifice for his sin, asking by faith that God would substitute the blood of the sacrificial animal for his own guilt and forgive him of his sins. That's the prayer. In this story, the Pharisee was arguably a more moral person than the tax collector, but morality is not what saves us. It's acknowledging our sin before a holy God and turning to him for his mercy by faith in God's sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. God, be propitious to me, the sinner. Well, here's the verdict in verse 14. I tell you, this man went to his house justified, that means declared righteous, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The way up is down. Here's the core of what's called justification by faith. It doesn't mean to be made righteous. It means that God declares us righteous. It's not something that we do. It's what God does by grace through faith in Christ. The Pharisee left feeling great, feeling like he was in. But the tax collector left forgiven. Both were pronounced justified. One was pronounced justified by himself. The other was pronounced justified by Jesus. Which, which would you want to be? Those whom God saves are not thinking other people are sinners, but rather I am the sinner. They're not full of themselves. They're sick of themselves. They're not trying to impress God, but be awed by God. They're not boasting in their goodness, but asking for mercy based upon Jesus' sacrifice. So here we are looking at these two men in Jesus' story, seeing how the gospel, we've looked at its essence, but how he applied it. You know, it's been said that Jesus came to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comforted. Well, Jesus is teaching us something here, too. What is Jesus teaching us as believers? I've got it. We should all bow our heads and thank God that we're not like the Pharisee. 
No. Imagine an audience hearing this filled with prostitutes, adulterers, tax collectors, thieves, swindlers, alcoholics, addicted to porn, abusers, people who use government to abolish religious liberty, because that's what Paul was doing, Saul of Tarsus. But imagine hearing this and for the first time being given hope. Also imagine being a Pharisee hearing this and having the rug pulled out from under you, being told that you're trying to climb this ladder of salvation that's leaning up against the law and realizing that it just evaporates. You're on the wrong ladder and you're using the wrong wrong wall. It's God's grace through faith. Are we ever like the Pharisee? Whom do we look down upon? Maybe the transgendered teenager with eyebrow piercings? Maybe illegal aliens? Maybe northerners? Maybe people who heckle in the sermon. <laughs> Maybe people who public school their kids, like Betsy and I did. Maybe Muslims. Maybe homeless people. Maybe the guy in the car at the red light next to you whose sound system is vibrating your car. If you have ever been tempted as a Christian saved by God's grace, to look down on any of these and feel smug. (laughs) Then this parable's for me. Just as a reminder to me about how Jesus looks at things. The chasm of sin that separates us from a holy God is a gulf that we cannot breach, but that God breached for us. Nothing that we can initiate will ever get us far enough. It's doomed to failure. Jesus himself took the initiative. As John put it, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The wages of sin is death. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins and died on the cross. The Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. This is the gospel. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the gospel. For those who don't know you, we ask that they would take a moment to invest in eternity and pray, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. For those of us who have been Christians for a while, Lord, it's easy for us to take grace for granted and be proud to develop the pride and then try to deal with it and then be proud of that. Forgive me for my own pride. Lord, I pray that every person here may revel in your forgiveness. May no person here today receive your judgment. 
We pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. If you would stand and turn in your...